Hello, and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where Colgate University community members answer 13 questions about their work. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today I'm speaking with Senior Assistant Dean of Admission, Brittany Darrow, and Associate Dean of Admission, Mari Prower. Darrow is a Colgate alumna in the class of 2017, where she was a Benton scholar and earned a double major in international relations and music. Originally from Rochester, Darrow joined the Colgate Office of Admission as an intern in 2015 and then became a full-time employee after graduation. She is a member of the University Staff Affairs Council, the nonprofit A Better Chance Clinton in Clinton, New York, and she was a member of Colgate's Bicentennial Committee. Darrow was responsible for overseeing the university's international admissions. Prower joined Colgate in August of 2018 after spending several years working for Eckert College in St. Petersburg, Florida, where she also attended college, graduating with a major in international business. Brittany and Mari, welcome to 13. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. So this episode is all about applying to college and little advice for students who are just starting their college search or maybe those who are ready to apply. So I'd like to start things off by asking what advice you have for students who are new to the college search process, maybe a high school sophomore or junior who's just starting off on their search and working to narrow down schools that they're interested in submitting an application to. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at higher education in the United States, we have a decentralized education system. So it can be very overwhelming when you see 4,000 colleges and universities and thinking as a 15, 16-year-old, how do I narrow down what that looks like for me? Where do my interests lie within these 4,000 colleges and universities? And it's important to stay true to yourself the entire time. It's not about what anybody else wants. It's about what you want and the kind of environment that you'll thrive in. That seems also daunting in and of itself, Um, But really being able to trust your gut and trust kind of what your ambitions and your passions are, there's going to be a place for you. And while that sounds, again, really daunting, it's about really figuring out that one place or those 10 places that you might be able to see yourself in. Taking a step back, understanding your passions, understanding what you're interested in studying, and how that university can not only help you in those four years, but also post-graduation too. And I would just add that everyone has access to different resources. And one of the things I've noted during the pandemic especially is the prevalence of YouTube, Reddit, Discord. These are great opportunities for students to connect with current students from other universities, connect with other students their age who are considering colleges, applying to colleges. And these are all resources that anyone can access as opposed to some students who may have a great counseling system in their school and others who might be first generation, first person in their household, in their school, who's maybe considering a school like Colgate. Um, So I highly recommend those resources. They're not an end-all be-all, but they're a great stepping stone for those who who may be just looking for a community to get started. Are there a list of attributes that students should look for first when they're looking at colleges? So should everyone kind of take a big picture and say, I want a small school in the Northeast – that is one of the most beautiful campuses in the country? Like, is that how people should (laughs) narrow it down? Or is there another way that students should start the search? Should they be looking for schools based on their ranking or their their academic reputation in the the field of study that the Mm -hmm. student wants to go into? I 
I, I laugh when you say that because uh, one, I, I find that, um, you know, when you look at rankings, there are so many great schools who all have similar rankings and there are great schools who may not even have a high ranking. I don't think that's really a metric students should look at. And I also know that um, one of the most famous questions that I get asked is, it, do you have a blank program? Do you have a business program? And I get these questions because students are trying to identify schools that have the program they're looking for. And that's a great question to ask. But for, for example, a school like Colgate, it's not as relevant of a question because you're arriving undeclared versus somewhere where maybe you actually have to apply to that program. So I think it really depends on maybe how committed that student feels in that moment to what they actually intend on studying. So I guess I kind of didn't answer the question, but rather said what not to do is I'd say those two are probably not uh, the first step you should be taking when when considering schools. But Mari, I don't know if you want to add. Yeah. So I worked in college counseling internationally um, after I graduated from college. And one of the things I would tell my students when they would come to me and say, Miss Mari, I don't know what I want to do. It is kind of thinking of like, what is the scale that you're looking for? What are the attributes that you want from a college? Because you can find those in a lot of places. You can also find a school that is in a city and has a business major and also has 10,000 students. It's then kind of finding those special traits in the spirit and maybe more of those like fine-tuned characteristics by doing that deep dive of research. So at Colgate, we accept a few different types of applications. Can you tell us about the options that are available to students and how they differ from one another? Sure. So I think to start, thinking about application rounds. There's a few different rounds that students can apply through. Um, generally speaking, there are students who apply early decision, there are students who apply regular decision, and then um, there are some students who apply through specific programs like QuestBridge, for example. Um, speaking just about early decision versus regular, it really is a conversation of you know students who've either gotten a chance to do all that research and feel really strongly about Colgate and want to commit to it versus students who still done the research but have a lot of options, still want to kind of weigh things out. But um, maybe thinking about like the actual applications that we accept, there's the Common App and the Coalition App. They're not too different in terms of the materials that actually go through. It's just kind of a preference of which form fits best for the school that you're attending and which one they recommend. So I don't know if you want to add anything. What are, what are the differences between the two? Like why have two different <laughs> applications? That's, I feel like that we <laughs> laugh about that because there really aren't very many differences between mm -hmm. them. Common application has historically been what the majority of colleges and the universities are on. Um, coalition for College, which is the coalition application, um, is a little bit more recent, and there are fewer schools on it. But Coalition for College also offers a number of different resources for students, too. So they do college fairs. They'll do different webinars. They'll do different um, kinds of breakout sessions for students to be able to understand the college admission process a little bit more. So they've evolved from an actual application to an organization that works with more access and, and allowing for students to gain a better understanding of the scope. When it comes down to what you're filling out on the application, it gives us the exact same information, but the colors are different. So am I hearing correctly, it doesn't matter or should do you recommend one over the other? It does not matter. No. All right. How does the application process work for international students? Do they fill out a different application? Are there things that they need to do that domestic students don't need to do? What should students who live abroad think about? Sure. So the actual application, for example, thinking about the Common App, the actual application will be the same, but 
Um, there are additional materials that an international student will need to provide, and it really depends on who the student is and where they're coming from. Um, international student fills a very broad, <laughs> there's a very broad uh, spectrum of international students, but um, for the majority of them, they might need to provide an English language-based test, um, which helps demonstrate proficiency in English. This is a very discussion-based kind of campus, so we want to, and lots of writing and, you know, research here, so we want to make sure that students who come here are going to be comfortable in the Colgate classroom. Um, some students may need to provide additional forms with their transcript, and that's country by country, because different countries have different materials that are needed to show they've graduated or show they've completed certain requirements. So um, those are all questions that uh, end up being ones that are most likely directed to our admission team, and we can answer them based on the countries that we all work with. We Most of us in the office now have international territories that we work with specifically. Um, the only other piece that I'd add is international students may have some additional forms they need to fill out if they're accepted and enroll at a school related to their visa or if they're planning to have a work-study job on campus. There's some additional um, pieces that may, they need to provide as well. So um, in terms of the actual core application, um, they look similarly in terms of what's needed, but um, you know, there's little things that might just be different from country to country and what's offered. How do you go about evaluating students that come from different parts of the world or different parts of the country where there's different access to opportunities like uh, advanced placement testing or not testing, but classes and um, just more opportunity in some schools than others. Some schools just by their nature might not offer the same things. Um, how do you go about figuring out um, or I guess uh, comparing these kind of applications against each other? Yeah, um, I think if if there's anything that anybody takes out of this conversation is that everything's incredibly contextual. We're always assessing a student within the context of where they're coming from, what's available to them, and never sort of comparing them to students outside of their school community or their home community as well. Um, we want to make sure that we are not using, using any bias against students that is sort of out of their control by any means. So um, for example, I work with students who come from India, and I know that the COVID pandemic has impacted people in India in a very different way than it has in the United States. And so as regional deans, essentially, we're regional experts. We're uh, responsible for not only knowing our schools and the curriculum, but also keeping up with what's going on in these regions. That's obviously a stark difference between the U.S. and India, but if we're talking about even California or even Arizona or anywhere that's not in this exact community. We're responsible for understanding that context and that community. So our work transcends beyond just the transcript and, and beyond just their sort of application. Um, we want to make sure that we're understanding every component of what the school offers, whether that's APs or IBs or none of that, um, and how that has sort of impacted that student and that student's journey and only that student's journey. And I would just add to that uh Colleges don't exist in bubbles. We communicate with each other. We communicate with high schools. We communicate with community-based organizations. And admission officers do, like Mari said, do a lot of research um, before we make a decision or even before we start evaluating a student. The world is constantly changing, and so we have this network of individuals who can have conversations with each other and say, what, what are you seeing from this state or this country? What trends? What changes? And these can be helpful for us to make really informed decisions as the world continues to evolve around us. Hmm. Colgate's currently in the middle of a pilot program of being test optional for our applicants. What does that mean 
And do students who don't submit SAT or ACT test scores have a disadvantage against those who do? We smile about this because this is one of the most common questions we're asked. Frankly, our admission process is so holistic that one number is not going to be the make or break for a student. This this goes back to the context that we were just talking about in the last point. Um, we know that the SAT and ACT have just frankly not been available to a lot of students. Um, and if it has, it's been like, I have to take a plane or I have to drive for eight hours to do this. Not only is that a huge burden to a student, like emotionally, physically, financially, mm-hmm. But it just doesn't give us a huge indication about who that student really is going to be when they're on our campus. We want to see how they've performed within the context of their high school and how they've involved themselves in their community. So when we say test optional, there's no there's no underlying tone to that. Like we truly mean that we are test optional. And if a student chooses to submit their testing, we will look at it within the context of their application. We don't have time to wonder or speculate as to why all of these students are not submitting. And frankly, whatever your reason is, that's your reason, and we don't need to know why. Um, so this three-year test and this three-year pilot is actually a really interesting sort of exercise for us to see how that application review can be almost better and a little bit more enhanced without getting so hung up on that number. Some schools with seemingly expensive sticker prices often end up costing a student less than another school with uh, a seemingly less expensive sticker price. How should prospective students go about evaluating financial aid packages between different schools, especially since everyone offers different support options and there are often vast differences between schools? It's a tricky question, isn't it? It is. Um, (laughs) And I think, you know, Part of it is getting organized. You know, if students are applying to many of the same type of school, they may have very similar looking financial aid requirements, but they might be applying to a state school and a liberal arts school and a technical school. And those may all have different options for need-based or merit-based. It's important to just get organized. Um, Honestly, I've told families just put together a Google Excel or something like that and just put down the names of the schools and go on their websites and look up and see what kind of financial aid they offer. And um, you're right that uh, some schools that seemingly have a really high ticket price end up costing less for some students. And um, for those institutions, they tend to be need-based financial aid. And for those students, it's really important to make those connections with the financial aid office early on. Do your research early on. A lot of schools will offer calculators, different resources on their websites. And doing it early on is best because a lot of institutions will ask for financial aid materials when you're applying. And so um, it's better to get those in as soon as possible so that, you know, if for any reason something was filled out incorrectly or something was missing, schools can catch that before you get your letter back because we want to make sure that school is financially accessible for any student who comes. Yeah, we have two really awesome tools that are on our website, and most colleges have them, at least one of them on theirs. Um, One is called the Net Price Calculator, and that gives a pretty accurate representation of the range of what you might be expected to pay or what your financial aid might look like. Um, I think the emphasis is on might here because there's a lot of nuances to those financial aid documents. And then another one called My Intuition, which actually asks for more information, but is a little bit more accurate because of that Hmm. um, and tends to give families a pretty good idea if this can be financially feasible for them. 
Last year was a record year for applications to Colgate. <laughs> In total, about 17,400 prospective students applied for admission. That was a remarkable 102.6% increase over the previous year. Inevitably, this means that more applicants will ultimately be turned away. What does this year look like? And how can students stand out in a crowd that big? We're laughing because we're still recovering. <laughs> um, we're in a really fortunate position to be at a time when, like, we thought the world was almost ending in a sense. Like, that's super dramatic. Um, but at a time when there was limited resources for a lot of people, we were so fortunate to be in the position that we were. Mm -hmm. um, I think everything that Colgate did starting from creating these health and safety guidelines right away, um, our President Casey being part of everything that was happening on campus, the national recognition we got, and how quickly we adapted our recruiting efforts were all just small factors in sort of the growth of the application pool. And I think it speaks volumes to the community that we're part of, right? And how much everybody's looking out for each other and everybody wants the best for each other. I'm dancing around this because it's a hard question. Um, we are in a fortunate position to be um, tracking in a way that is similar to last year, not as not as much, um, but we, we have a very full application pool right now. Um, and we are still, you know, four days away from the early decision deadline here as I break out in hives because I'm thinking that the deadline is coming. Um, we're still reviewing them holistically. We spent a lot of time reading applications, which is why we're still recovering, because um, we were still able to use our process in the same exact way. We practice what's called committee-based evaluation, CBE. So there's two admission officers reading an application at the same time. It allows us to have more of a um, conversation about the applicant. It allows us to synthesize the themes that we're getting from the application and really be able to place that student on our campus. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's hard because we don't know what this year is going to look like and we don't know what could happen in five days from now and two weeks from now and two months from now when our regular decision deadline is. Um, but again, we're fortunate to be able to maintain sort of the integrity of the holistic review that we have. And I would say for students who are trying to stand out, authenticity is always the word that I use. Uh, we read a lot of applications. And so it's very obvious to us when students are sharing something that they're deeply connected to and they're talking about things in their essay or supplementals or they're hearing about things in their recommendation. We're hearing about things in the recommendations as well. We can tell when it's something a student genuinely cares about versus when it's not. And ultimately, we're not just we're not a hiring firm, right? We're an admission office. So we're building a community as we're selecting students. And so we want to be bringing the people we read to campus. So when students are authentic with us, that allows us to read them and think, is this a student that is a fit for our community? Where can we see them on campus? What buildings can we see them in? What classes can we see them taking? Um, and ultimately, we're able to evaluate that again through uh you know, reading as a, as a reading as a pair, and and also just from the materials that students really spend the time to be themselves in. How many applications did you read last year? Um, too many, way too many. <laughs> it, I think it's tough because both of us have some 
pretty large yeah. territories and had some pretty large territories last year. And so we probably each read upwards of 2,000 probably. applications last year. Yeah, I would yeah. say probably 2,000 or so yeah. that we, we had wow. to go through. So do students need to have a major in mind before they apply to college or is that something that can come later? This goes back to what Brittany was saying earlier. Um, Colgate's a place where in our minds, students come in undecided. The beauty of the liberal arts curriculum is that it enables students to be able to have the sense of discovery and take courses within a variety of areas of study that they never thought even existed before they declare a major and decide this is exactly what they're doing. Um, I think even when students declare their major, it tends to stray away from what they thought. They didn't think that they could go and be in investment banking and be a peace and conflict studies major. So it's they can certainly have it in mind what they want to study, and it's good to do that to make sure that, like, if you want to be studying, um, I don't know, if you want to be studying zoology and that's exactly what you want to be doing and you want to be working at a school that has a zoo there, like, the, this isn't the place for that. Mm-hmm. But generally, to know that a liberal arts college kind of can tailor its curriculum to your wants is kind of the benefit of that. But everybody comes in undecided. Travel has obviously been pretty difficult over the past two years. That's putting it mildly. What do you tell students who are interested in applying at Colgate or anywhere, um, but they're hesitant because they haven't had a chance to visit the campus? One of the things that's been kind of an unforeseen benefit from the pandemic is this understanding that we need to be approaching things from both an in-person and a virtual standpoint. And everybody hates Zoom. I know. I agree. (laughs) But ultimately, there are a lot of students who've had to do the college search process by themselves on websites for many years now. And so um, I can speak for Colgate. You know, we developed a robust virtual interview program, um, virtual information sessions, virtual webinars focused on different departments focused on the application process, even a financial aid one um, we've done as well. Um, And then also just there have been a number of opportunities. Even um, last year, once students were admitted, we offered some opportunities for uh, admitted students to get to know each other in a a Zoom room. And, you know, Zoom is not the the solution to everything. We have to be creative and find new ways. But um, I think it's, you know, when students reach out and they say, I haven't been able to travel yet, um, you know, there are a lot of students who haven't been able to travel before the pandemic hit. And so, you know, the fact is now those resources are all available. And the other thing I always say um, is, you know, take the time to reach out to current students because you can talk to us as much as you want. And Mari and I are great. Um, but ultimately, our stories and our perspectives may not be as relevant as a sophomore who's living on campus and taking some of the classes you're interested in. Um, and our office has current students in all class years, as well as senior interns who are trained on pretty much every department, office, the admission process, all of those things. Um, These students are there to answer questions, give you your time. And so um, I always encourage students, if they're really looking for it and they're disappointed, they don't get that chance to be here physically, the best next step is to connect to a current student so they can at least hear what it's like right now. Let's say I'm a shy high school sophomore (laughs) who's never uh, done anything related to a college search before, and you give me a name of someone to call on campus, what, what do I ask them? I think what I usually do, actually, when I connect students is I'll, I'll CC the students in the email. I'll introduce them both. So I'll say, here's my current student. They're studying these things. Hello, current student. Here is prospective student. 
they've mentioned to me that they wanted to learn more about these things. And we actually kind of turn it over to our students, at least the ones that we uh, employ. We turn it over to them to start the conversation. That can be kind of helpful for students who don't know which questions to ask or don't know where to go. Um, we're lucky that most of our students are frequently giving tours every day or they're on the front desk asking and answering a lot of questions. And so their kind of uh, their expertise in, you know, interacting with guests and providing customer service is increasing by the day. And so that helps them with some of our guests who might be a little shyer or um, may not be comfortable with a call or something else like that. I think the other part of that, too, is that um, we don't know anything about these students even when they reach out to us. So I always used to tell my students that I worked with, like, you may be really shy, but nobody knows that. And nobody has to know that. This is your time to kind of work on who you are and maybe try to get out of your shell a little bit more and use this time to contact current students to really kind of explore what your interests are. And they don't need to know that you're the shy kid at school. They don't, don't need to know that you're an introvert because this is your time to kind of be that extroverted introvert as you're sort of approaching this process. Hmm. What is a wait list and how does it work? So <laughs> a what, a good, what a good question. So a wait list, um, Colgate University, we're a school that has a limited number of beds. We get a lot of applications. How many? Uh, what do we have on campus? It's just like 775 is usually our average class size, 775 to 800. That's what you're so aiming for every year? Depends on, depends on the year-ish, um, you know, a little over, a little under. But in theory, 800 beds. We read students. We have tons of qualified students. That's the one thing is our, our applicant pool tends to be a lot of students who are extremely too close to qualified to attending Colgate. Um and once we've identified those students who are absolutely a fit, we can also say there are students that were great fits for Colgate as well. Um, and if we had them on campus, we'd still be happy to have them here and actually be really excited to have them here. Um, it's really just an opportunity for us to have such a pool with such a high quality to still have those students available so that if there is a spot open and this is a student that shared with us, I love Colgate and we're thinking, man, you are a really good fit. We can go back later and say, congratulations, there's space now and we'd love to have you here. Uh, I think a lot of students wonder why they get placed on the wait list or does that mean they weren't as good? And again, it really, especially in a year like last year where um, we saw such a huge volume, you know, you find a lot of students who you think that you'd be great for Colgate, but ultimately we have to uh, enroll a class around, well, maybe not this year, <laughs> but enroll a class that ends up in that around 800 range. So. So how does it work? You get a letter that says you've been placed on a wait list. What does that mean? What do you, what do, you do, um, particularly if you've applied to other schools? Like how, how does that work? Yeah, so the wait list process can differ. Um, the When you're placed on a wait list, when you get your decision, it will either say yes, no, maybe. And that maybe is sort of that wait list in a sense. Um, it's really important to engage with the school after you've been placed on the wait list. If you've been placed on the wait list and you've been admitted to other schools and you say, nope, I just like those schools better, it's so important to withdraw your application and say, thank you for getting back to me. I'm choosing to go to wherever it is. Um, if you're placed on a wait list and you still find that that school, let's say Colgate in this example, um, is your top choice, it's important to communicate that with your regional admission officer. We host a lot of different events specifically for waitlisted students. And as Brittany was mentioning earlier, 
part of the robust webinar series that we offered, one is about what to do once you're on the wait list and how do you express that interest. So even though we don't track demonstrated interest throughout the entire application process, we do throughout the waitlist process to see how engaged you are and to see uh, if this is a place that you want to be. Um, you may find out in April that you're taken off of a waitlist, or you may find out in June. And there's just no specific timeline, and every college does it a little bit different. Um, I've heard of some people getting off of waitlists at other schools in July or August. And it's just how the class is being built and what we would consider melt and how you sort of fill that class too. Um, so there's no one answer to that. This goes back to everything being a decentralized education system. Um, but the, the best piece of advice is to just stay engaged with that school if you find you're really interested. What if a student wants to play Division I athletics at Colgate? How is that process different from a student seeking traditional admission? It depends on the sport um, because there are going to be some sports that can have team members walk onto the team once they're on campus. There are some teams where you're going to have to be actively recruited, and every sport has a different timeline for when that process starts, as well as when you are and aren't allowed to communicate with coaches. And I think that's important for student prospective student-athletes to know is there are certain times where coaches will be able to have a conversation with you, meet you on campus, um, versus other times they may not. Um, for students who are very deeply interested, tends to be largely conversation between that student, their family, and the coaching uh, team. They'll often, if they are planning to be a slotted athlete, so somebody who is joining the team officially the moment they come on campus, um, they may need to apply early decision one. Um, they may need to provide some materials before the application process, but really it depends on the sport, the team, the coaches, those conversations. We read the applications in the same way that we read anybody else's application. And I think that's one thing that makes Colgate unique is that our student athletes are very much so students and then athletes. Mm -hmm. um, and we belong to a league that assesses students with an academic index. Um, and as in assessing students within an academic index, we want to make sure that they're great stewards of their athletic community, but also of the academic community, because we want them to succeed here as students and not just athletes, too. So they send in an application on the same deadline, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. what do they do? They call a coach and say, I'm interested in playing field hockey. Like, so how does that work? The, the conversations with the coaches have likely happened well before the application hits our inboxes. They've likely been having a lot of conversations, not just with the coaches, but we also have athletic liaisons in our office who are dedicated admission officers who work with specific coaches and specific sports because they're the ones who the coaches know to communicate to. Um, so likely before uh, the student's application has hit our inboxes, they've talked to the coach. They've probably talked to current students who are on that team. They may have talked to that athletic liaison and also their regional dean. Um, the regional dean or the athletic liaison has likely had a conversation with their counselor, too, about getting a lot of that information in. Um, so there's a lot of kind of steps before we see the application and that comes to life at that point. Yeah, and I would just emphasize what Mari said is we see them in the same round, same rounds as our current, you know, other students who are not recruited athletes, and we read them in the same way. Um, so it's just important to know that they're a part of our process because we're bringing students to campus, but they may be a student with just a different interest. How does early uh, early admission work 
Um, tell me about the the different kinds. So you have early admission one, early admission two, then there's regular admission. How, how does mm-hmm. that all work? And do you have a leg up by applying via early admission? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we have so we have two early decision rounds. Um, there's early decision. There's early action. What er- are those dates? Um, early decision is November fifteenth, um, which is Monday. Uh, well, I guess that. <laughs> well, we're recording, we're recording this, this. Okay, on never a, mind. On a Thursday, the eleventh. But... So, November fifteenth is our early decision one deadline. Because Colgate doesn't track interest at any point throughout the process, students' way of telling us that Colgate is their first choice is by applying through early decision. Um, in our regular decision round, it does tend to get a little bit more competitive. Regular decision round is January 15th, so all applications have to be in at that point. But students also have the option of converting their regular decision application into an early decision two application. So early decision one and two are seen in the same way. They're just read at different times of the year. So by applying November 15th, students hear back from us about mid-December. When they apply through regular decision, they hear back from us mid to late March. And when they convert their application to ED2, they'll hear back from us end of February, beginning of March or so. And just to follow up, uh, you know, it's partially a part of that is, you know, you're telling us that Colgate's your number one choice. Um, And also just thinking about trends and where we're seeing a lot of our applications come through. We saw a lot of applications come from our regular decision students. And so, um, you know. That's a great place for an early decision two student who initially had Colgate on their list and then after the winter break gets a chance to do a little bit more research. That's a chance for them to be a part of that. I feel really strongly about Colgate group. You've made it to question 13. Woo! Congratulations. Wow, this feels special. (laughs) So this is a a two-prong question here, and maybe one of you can take uh, one side and one can take the other. But I'm curious. You've both read thousands of applications. Can you tell me... Can one of you tell me about the absolute worst application you've ever read? Obviously, no identifying details here. But what is the worst thing you've ever read as in just the most awful application? And what is the most heartwarming slash um, what is the application that made you just like be so excited to accept that person? Okay, I have I have one for both. Okay. Um, yes, I've read so many applications, not just here, but at my previous institution. And I've read essays from the other side of things, too. Um, one of the worst applications I ever saw um, was a student who did not go to class and their teachers wrote some like pretty negative things <laughs> about them, like obviously, right? right, right. Um, and then their essay was three sentences and it was about how they identified as a dolphin. Um, and their only activity was scuba diving, um, which hence the, Goes with the dolphin, the dolphin yeah. thing and potentially maybe not being in class because – I guess they were under the sea. Um, I looked at that and I had to like read it over to be like, are we sure we're not missing materials? And we were not. Um, that was that was a moment where I said, is this the job I want to do? I'm still in it. This was like seven years ago. Um, the best essay that I've ever read, one of the t- – I have like top five. Um, it was – Probably the most heartwarming story because it was a really, like, coming-of-age story. Um, Students can, like, super tug on my heartstrings. Like, I am an emotional reader for sure. Um, This student was telling me a story about how they um, were bullied all of their life, and they never really found the place to fit in. Um, And in fifth grade, the bullying was just at its height. And they got tripped in the cafeteria, and they had chicken nuggets on their lunch tray. 
the chicken nuggets fell and they were bouncing everywhere, uh, as elementary school chicken nuggets apparently do. <laughs> um, and instead of people laughing at her, she met her best friend to this day through that girl coming over to her and saying, it's okay, look at how these chicken nuggets are bouncing. Let's have a contest to see who can bounce them farther. Um, and she just kind of talked about how that's how she found her best friend and she knew that everything was going to be okay and she didn't need those people who were bullying her because she was able to find humor out of something. And so now she approaches life in more of a humorous way. She became involved in her stand-up comedy group at school and it really kind of brought her out of her shell and it was like one of the most heartwarming, like, I know my worth kind of stories. I don't have a specific one that is the best, but I have – everyone has implicit bias, right? Sure. And my implicit bias, I always have a soft spot for the wacky, the unique, the nerds, <laughs> the K-pop stands, you know, all of those things. And I always love the really creative essays because they always find this fun way of – you know, I've read stories where they've compared their life to a Rubik's Cube or their life to – being in Dungeons and Dragons or playing an instrument. And I always just, I love those, one, again, because I have an implicit bias, but two, because you can really tell that the student who wrote that essay was excited for me to read it. Um, So there are definitely, excuse me, (laughs) there's definitely a couple of those that I can think of. Um, There's also just one other essay I just thought of, of, um, a student talking about um, seeing their mother um, kind of go through the education system a little bit later than they did. Um, it was really powerful and and really well written and and very mature um, and really stands out to me to this day. Worst, I <laughs> I, I have to be careful because <laughs> you know it's you know I I write I like to go into apps with the mentality that you know everyone's trying their best, but um, some people I, I've I've definitely there's one in mind that I'm thinking of where uh, the student received some letters of recommendation from a lot of family members um, who who spoke very highly about them from birth to now. And it just was a little bit too much information and didn't necessarily uh, reflect on their academic profile and personal profile. So it was a lot of a slog through many pages of recommendations. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I find that one to be kind of funny because I didn't I remember it being so many pages, and I didn't really learn that much <laughs> when I read. Th- I learned too much and not that much at the same time. So um, that was a that was a memorable application. I'll say that much. And that was thirteen. Thank you, Brittany and Mari, for joining us on the show today. Uh, if anyone has questions uh, for our admission officers here at Colgate, feel free to send me a note at thirteen at colgate.edu, and that's thirteen, the number. And until next time. Keep asking questions. Quick editor's note for folks listening on the day that this episode is released, uh, which would be November 15th. The deadline for early decision one is at midnight tonight. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive producer, vice president for communications, Laura Jack. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Ketrael Pritz. Research assistance provided by Colgate sophomore and media relations intern, Marianma Lemon. And I am your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth university news and research stories.